0: chapter 15b of the everyday life of abraham lincoln this librivox recording is in the public domain the everyday life of abraham lincoln by francis fisher brown chapter 15b a new era begun lincoln in the white house the first cabinet the president and the office seekers southern prejudice against lincoln ominous portents but lincoln not dismayed the president's reception-room the formalities of the inauguration concluded lincoln passed back through the senate chamber and again escorted by mr buchanan was conducted to the white house where the cares and anxieties of his position immediately descended upon him strange indeed says general logan must have been the thoughts that crowded through the brain and oppressed the heart of abraham lincoln that night his first at the white house the city of washington swarmed with rebels and rebel sympathizers and all the departments of government were honeycombed with treason and shadowed with treachery and espionage. Every step proposed or contemplated by the government would be known to the so-called government of the Confederate States almost as soon as thought of. All means to thwart and delay the carrying out of the government's purposes that the excuses of routine and red tape admitted of would be used by the traitors within the camp to aid the traitors without. No one knew all this better than Mr. Lincoln. With no army, no navy, not even a revenue-cutter left, with forts and arsenals, ammunition and arms, in possession of the South, with no money in the national treasury, and the national credit blasted, the position must, even to his hopeful nature, have seemed desperate. Yet even in this awful hour he was sustained by confidence in the good effects of his conciliatory message to the South, and by his trust in the patriotism of the people and the providence of God. Mr. Wells, the incoming Secretary of the Navy, in writing of the period immediately following the inauguration, says, A strange state of things existed at that time in Washington. The atmosphere was thick with treason. Party spirit and old party differences prevailed amidst the accumulating dangers. Secession was considered by most persons as a political party question, not as rebellion. Democrats to a large extent sympathized with the rebels more than with the administration. The Republicans, on the other hand, were scarcely less partisan and unreasonable, clamorous for the removal of all Democrats indiscriminately from office. The President's first official act was the announcement of his cabinet, which was composed of the following persons—William H. Seward, Secretary of State, Simon Cameron, Secretary of War, Salmon P. Chase, Secretary of the Treasury, Gideon Wells, Secretary of the Navy, caleb b smith secretary of the interior montgomery blair postmaster-general and edward bates attorney-general lincoln had selected these counsellors with grave deliberation in reply to the remonstrances urged on political grounds against the appointment of one or two of them he had said the times are too grave and perilous for ambitious schemes and personal rivalries i need the aid of all these men they enjoy the confidence of their several states and sections, and they will strengthen the administration. On another occasion, he remarked, It will require the utmost skill, influence, and sagacity of all of us to save the country. Let us forget ourselves, and join hands like brothers to save the Republic. If we succeed, there will be glory enough for all." speculations have been almost endless as to how the cabinet came to be made up as it was, but the truth is, according to Secretary Wells, that it was practically made up in Springfield almost as soon as Lincoln found himself elected. In Lincoln's own words, as given by Mr. Wells, on the day of the presidential election, the operator of the telegraph in Springfield placed his instrument at my disposal. I was there without leaving, after the returns began to come in, until we had enough to satisfy us how the election had gone. This was about two in the morning of Wednesday. I went home, but not to get much sleep, for I then felt, as I never had before, the responsibility that was upon me. I began, at once, to feel that I needed support, others to share with me the burden. This was on Wednesday morning, and before the sun went down, I had made up my cabinet. It was almost the same that I finally appointed. The only two members of the cabinet who served from the beginning to the end of Lincoln's administration were Wells and Seward. Stanton was not appointed until January 13, 1862, succeeding Simon Cameron. Chase left the Treasury Department to become Chief Justice, and was succeeded in the Treasury Department by ex-Governor Fessenden of Vermont. Who, in his term was succeeded by Hugh McCullough. The Attorney General's chair was filled successively by Bates and Speed. Caleb B. Smith was the first Secretary of the Interior, succeeded January 1, 1863, by John P. Usher. The first Postmaster General was Montgomery Blair, who was followed September 4, 1864, by ex-Governor Dennison of Ohio, the appointment that gave the greatest surprise of any in the Cabinet was that of Stanton as Secretary of War. Stanton had been in Buchanan's cabinet as Attorney General. He had been outspoken, almost brutal, in his scornful hostility to Lincoln, and the appointment by him was as great a surprise to Stanton as his acceptance of it was to everyone. When asked, somewhat incredulously, what he would do as War Secretary, Stanton replied, "'I will make Abe Lincoln President of the United States.' Of the character of this remarkable man, Mr. Alonzo Rothschild, in his interesting study of the relations between Lincoln and Stanton, Lincoln, Master of Men, page 229, says, Intense earnestness marked Stanton's every act. So sharply were all his faculties focused upon the purpose of the hour, that he is to be classed among the one idea men of history. Whatever came between him and his goal encountered an iron will quick to penetrate through the husks of fraud into the very nubbin of things he was even more swiftly moved by relentless wrath to insist upon exposure and punishment the brief career as attorney-general in buchanan's cabinet had been long enough to demonstrate his almost savage hostility toward official dishonesty as well as his moral courage to grapple with treason in high places above all he evinced a loyalty to the Union that rose above the party creed of a lifetime, that might demand of him any sacrifice however great. The first weeks of President Lincoln's residence in the Executive Mansion were occupied with the arduous work of selecting loyal and capable men for responsible positions in the government service. The departments at Washington were filled with disloyal men who used the means and influence pertaining to their places to aid the rebellious States. It was of vital importance that these faithless officials should be removed at the earliest moment, and their positions filled with men of tried integrity. Lincoln desired to appoint for this purpose staunch, competent, and trustworthy citizens, regardless of party distinctions. But the labor involved in this duty was enormous and exhausting. There was a multitude of vacant places, there were difficult questions to be considered in a majority of cases, and there was a host of applicants and their friends to be satisfied mr charles a dana relates a circumstance which hints at the troubles encountered by lincoln in this province of his presidential duties the first time i saw mr lincoln says mr dana was shortly after his inauguration he had appointed mr seward to be his secretary of state and some of the Republican leaders of New York, who had been instrumental in preventing Mr. Seward's nomination to the presidency, and in securing that of Mr. Lincoln, had begun to fear that they would be left out in the cold in the distribution of the offices. Accordingly, several of them determined to go to Washington, and I was asked to go with them. We all went up to the White House together, except Mr. Stanton, who stayed away because he was himself an applicant for office mr lincoln received us in the large room upstairs in the east wing of the white house where the president had his working office and stood up while general wadsworth who was our principal spokesman stated what was desired after the interview was begun a big indianian who was a messenger in attendance in the white house came into the room and said to the president she wants you yes yes said mr lincoln without stirring soon afterward the messenger returned again exclaiming I say she wants you." The President was evidently annoyed, but instead of going out after the messenger he remarked to us, "'One side shall not gobble up everything. Make out a list of the places and men you want, and I will endeavour to apply the rule of give-and-take.'" General Wadsworth answered, "'Our party will not be able to remain in Washington, but we will leave such a list with Mr. Carroll, and whatever he agrees to will be agreeable to us.' Mr. Lincoln continued, "'Let Mr. Carroll come in to and we will see what can be done. Lincoln was regarded with violent animosity by all who were in sympathy with the peculiar prejudices of the slave states. The inhabitants of the District of Columbia looked upon him with a special dislike. He was to them an odious embodiment of the abhorred principles of abolitionism. As an illustration of this bitter feeling, Mr. Arnold narrates the following anecdote. A distinguished South Carolina lady, one of the Howards, the widow of a northern scholar, called upon him out of curiosity. She was very proud and aristocratic, and was curious to see a man who had been represented to her as a monster, a mixture of the ape and the tiger. She was shown into the room where were Mr. Lincoln and Senators Seward, Hale, Chase, and other prominent members of Congress. As Mr. Seward, whom she knew, presented her to the President, she hissed in his ear, "'I am a South Carolinian.' Instantly reading her character he turned and addressed her with the greatest courtesy, and dignified and gentlemanly politeness. After listening a few moments, astonished to find him so different from what he had been described to her, she said,—'Why, Mr. Lincoln, you look, act, and speak, like a kind, good-hearted, generous man.' "'And did you expect to meet a savage?' said he. "'Certainly I did, or even something worse,' replied she. "'I am glad I have met you,' she continued, "'and now the best way to preserve peace is for you to go to Charleston and show the people what you are, and tell them you have no intention of injuring them.' Returning home, she found a party of secessionists, and on entering the room she exclaimed, "'I have seen him! I have seen him! Who?' they inquired. "'That terrible monster Lincoln! And I have found him a gentleman, and I am going to his first levee after his inauguration.' At his first reception, this tall daughter of South Carolina, dressing herself in black and velvet, with two long white plumes in her hair, repaired to the White House. She was nearly six feet high, with black eyes and black hair, and in her velvet and white feathers she was a striking and majestic figure. As she approached the President, he recognized her immediately. "'Here I am again,' said she, "'that South Carolinian.' "'I am glad to see you,' replied he and to assure you that the first object of my heart is to preserve peace. And I wish that not only you but every son and daughter of South Carolina were here—that I might tell them so." Mr. Cameron, Secretary of War, came up, and after some remarks he said, "'South Carolina,' which had already seceded, "'is the prodigal son.' "'Ah, Mr. Secretary,' said she, "'if South Carolina is the prodigal son, Uncle Sam, our father, ought to divide the inheritance and let her go. But they say you are going to make war upon us. Is it so?" "'Oh, come back,' said Lincoln. "'Tell South Carolina to come back now, and we will kill the fatted calf.'" The impression which Lincoln made on those who met him at the outset of his career as President, and their varied comments and descriptions, are matters of peculiar interest. At first many people did not understand him hardly knew what to make of a personality so unlike any they had ever seen in high places before. But he soon began to show those qualities of calm self-reliance, quickness to grasp the essential factors of a situation and readiness to meet it, courage, patience, firmness, breadth of view and kindliness, practical tact and wisdom, which were a surprise to all who knew him, and are now seen to be but a rapid and logical unfolding under the stimulus of his enormous responsibilities, of his great natural powers. The test had come, the crisis was upon him, and he met them marvellously well. General W. T. Sherman contributes an interesting reminiscence at this point. One day, says General Sherman, my brother, Senator Sherman, took me with him to see Mr. Lincoln. We found the room full of people. Mr. Lincoln sat at the end of a table talking with three or four gentlemen who soon left. John walked up, shook hands, and took a chair near him, holding in his hand some papers referring to minor appointments in the State of Ohio, which formed the subject of conversation. Mr. Lincoln took the papers, said he would refer them to the proper heads of departments, and would be glad to make the appointments asked for, if not already promised. John then turned to me, and said, "'Mr. President, this is my brother, Colonel Sherman, who is just up from Louisiana. He may give you some information you want." "'Ah,' said Mr. Lincoln, "'how are they getting along down there?' I said, "'They think they are getting along swimmingly. They are preparing for war.' "'Oh, well,' said he, "'I guess we'll manage to keep house.' I was silenced, said no more to him, and we soon left. I was sadly disappointed, and remember that I broke out on John cursing the politicians generally, saying, you have got things in a blank of a fix, and you may get them out as best you can," adding that the country was sleeping on a volcano that might burst forth at any minute, but that I was going to St. Louis to take care of my family, and would have no more to do with it. John begged me to be more patient, but I said I would not, that I had no time to wait, that I was off for St. Louis. And off I went. The apartment which Lincoln used as an office, in which to transact daily business and to receive informal visits, was on the second floor of the White House. Its simple equipments are thus described by Mr. Arnold. It was about twenty-five by forty feet in size. In the center, on the west, was a large white marble fireplace, with big old-fashioned brass andirons, and a large and high brass fender. A wood-fire was burning in cool weather. The large windows opened on the beautiful lawn to the south with a view of the unfinished washington monument the smithsonian institution the potomac alexandria and on down the river toward mount vernon across the potomac were arlington heights and arlington house late the residence of robert e lee on the hills around during nearly all lincoln's administration were the white tents of soldiers field fortifications and camps and in every direction could be seen the brilliant colors of the national flag the furniture of this room consisted of a large oak table covered with cloth, extending north and south, and it was around this table that the cabinet sat when it held its meetings. Near the end of the table, and between the windows, was another table, on the west side of which the President sat, in a large armchair, and at this table he wrote, A tall desk with pigeon-holes for papers stood against the south wall. The only books usually found in this room were the Bible, the United States statutes, and a copy of Shakespeare. There were a few chairs, and two plain hair-covered sofas. There were two or three map-frames, from which hung military maps, on which the position and movements of the armies were traced. On the mantel was an old and discolored engraving of General Jackson, and a later photograph of John Bright. Doors opened into this room from the room of the secretary, and from the outside hall running east and west across the house a bell cord within reach of his hand extended to the secretary's office a messenger who stood at the door opening from the hall took in the cards and names of visitors here in this plain room lincoln spent most of his time while president here he received every one from the chief justice and lieutenant-general to the private soldier and humblest citizen custom had fixed certain rules of precedence and the order in which officials should be received Members of the cabinet and the high officers of the army and navy were generally promptly admitted Senators and members of Congress were received in the order of their arrival Sometimes there would be a crowd of them waiting their turn while thus waiting the loud ringing laugh of mr. Lincoln would be heard by the waiting and impatient crowd Here day after day often from early morning to late at night Lincoln sat listened talked and decided he was patient just considerate And hopeful the people came to him as a father he saw every one and many wasted his precious time governors senators congressmen officers clergymen bankers merchants all classes approached him with familiarity this incessant labor the study of the great problems he had to decide the worry of constant importunity the quarrels of officers of the army the care anxiety and responsibility of his position War upon his vigorous frame. End of chapter fifteen. B. Recording by Bill Borst.